0: So if you've got uh, that passage, do uh, keep it open in front of you. We'll be referring to it uh, from time to time this morning. This morning, we're uh, going to continue looking at the book of Joshua. And with God's help, we'll try to learn some lessons for ourselves from the experience of the children of Israel that we have recorded there. If you were with us last week, you may recall that we spent some time considering the account of Rahab. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, who was most graciously saved through the providential intervention of our Lord. The spies, you remember, had gone on an intelligence mission, and yet they came back having carried out A rescue mission. Faced with the just punishment of her sin, Rahab cried out to God. She was heard and she was given a most wonderful promise of preservation in the face of the impending judgment that she knew would come. And you may recall that the spies who had delivered the promise to Rahab returned to the people of Israel who at that stage were camped on the east side of the Jordan. And they came with news that the inhabitants of Jericho were faint-hearted. They came with news that their hearts had melted as they heard of what God had done for Israel. And they came full of assurance that God would deliver the land into the hand of Israel. And it's with this news that we come to the beginning of chapter 3 this morning. Our passage opens with Joshua rising early. Um, And he begins his military maneuvers. For we read in verse 1, They set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel. Well, we'll take a few minutes this morning to consider the story of how the people of Israel crossed the Jordan River, as we find it recounted in the passage which we've just read in Joshua chapters 3 and 4. And we'll consider it under three headings, A Miracle Anticipated, a miracle observed, and then a miracle remembered. A miracle anticipated, a miracle observed, and then a miracle remembered. First then, uh, we uh, look at the first 13 verses, uh, which recounts to us a miracle anticipated. Having heard the report of the spies, you might have thought that Joshua would have swung his battle plan into action. We'd be forgiven to expect that the trumpet would have been sounded. His troops would have been mobilised and the advanced cavalry sent off to capitalise on the fear and dismay of their enemy. But as we look at verses 1 and 2, we see a very different strategy unfolding They came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp. We're not told precisely why the Israelites had to spend three days camped by the Jordan, but we can see two things, I think, in the passage which may give us a clue. Firstly, it's worth forming a picture in our mind of the scene that we have before us. For in verse 1, we're told that they lodged by the Jordan. Now, uh, they weren't staying in a motel or a hotel there. Uh, they have been nomadic for the past 40 years, so they were used to living in tents. But this time, we read that they were camped beside a river. A few years ago, my wife and I were married and um, on a honeymoon we went to the island of Crete and while there, one day we walked down something called this Maria Gorge. It's a deep uh, ravine and you started up in the hills and ended down by the sea. It was a deep ravine that had a river in it and yet when we walked through that ravine, there was just a trickle of water in the bottom of the valley floor. Having come home, a few weeks later, that same place was in the news because a number of tourists have been swept away as a sudden rush of water had, from rains in the mountains had come through the gorge and filled what for us had been a dry riverbed virtually. Well, the Jordan is a bit like this. In uh, verse 15, we're told that at that time of the year, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. At other times of the year, the Jordan might be a rather miserable, uh, slightly muddy river, but at this time of year, the position is completely different. Back in chapter 2, in verse 7, we're told that there are places where you could ford the River Jordan, at least some of the time. But the Israelites were camped by the Jordan, which is now in full flood. The people were indeed faced with a formidable barrier you might object that the spies had crossed the river previously, but two spies were in a different class altogether from the people of Israel who were camped by the Jordan in chapter four, verse thirteen. We read that there were forty thousand soldiers, and then there were the men and uh, the women and the children, the cattle and all their belongings. so this great host is camped by the river, which is surging by in full flood. Why then did God have them wait by the river for three days? Well, perhaps it, one reason is it gave them time to contemplate the task which was before them. Perhaps as they watched the river rushing by each day, it helped them realize their inability to deal with this task themselves. And isn't that true of us sometimes? Our lives are full of the business of life as we dash hither and thither. Uh, we spend all our time dealing with this issue and that, speaking to this person, emailing that person, and we leave little time to reflect on our dependence of God. Not so Joshua. Joshua. And the Israelites, because in the Lord's providence they were given time to reflect and consider and acknowledge their impotence before God. They could go no further under their own steam. The second thing that we see here though is that while the Israelites were camped beside the Jordan, they were also called to consecrate themselves. Look at verse 5. Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Some other translations use the term sanctify, sanctify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Note that this is an injunction, it's a command. It's something that the Israelites were told to do. They were told to get ready for the task. They were told to consecrate themselves. Now, quite rightly, we do not believe that men and women are saved by their own efforts. The gospel of the Bible, the gospel that we preach, is all about God. Indeed, the very name Jesus, like the name Joshua, means the Lord, our salvation. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64 that we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So then, left to our own devices, we are without hope. Our best efforts, the Bible tells us, are as filthy rags. They're rubbish, and we will die and rot like a leaf that has fallen from a tree to the ground. It is God alone who performs a most remarkable act in saving us from the penalty and the power of sin. Not only did God pay the price for our sin, of course, but the very faith that we exercise in believing on Christ. Why, says Paul, even that is a gift from God. So then our salvation is a gift from God. It's executed by God, and it's executed by God alone. So what then was this thing that the Israelites were told to do? Consecrate or sanctify themselves? Well, a sanctuary is a place set apart, isn't it? A bird sanctuary is a place set apart for the birds. So to sanctify something is to set it apart, in this case, for God. How can we, or the Israelites by the Jordan, consecrate ourselves? How can we set ourselves apart for God, given that we are, as Isaiah tells us, all like an unclean thing? how can we then consecrate ourselves or set ourselves apart for God? Well, the Israelites would have uh, confessed their sin and undergone a ceremonial washing. That washing of the dirt from the the outside of their bodies pointed towards an inward washing. The washing pointed forward to one who was able to cleanse the deepest stain of sin, even the Lord Jesus. So in Hebrews 10.21, we read, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So then the Israelites were called to consecrate themselves. They confessed their sin. They looked forward to a great high priest who would come to take away their sins, even though they did not know who he would be. And that left them with a clean conscience. So the Israelites then were camped beside the river Jordan. They contemplated the immense task before them. They consecrated themselves to God. And then Joshua calls them in verse 9 to listen to the words of the Lord their God. And there are two things, two pieces of information that he gives them here. First, he tells them that it's the ark which is going to go ahead of them. And secondly, he tells them that because of this, they should be assured that the living God is indeed among them and that he will, without fail, drive out the Canaanites and the other tribes living in the promised land. And in some ways, this is the crux of the story. God God could have brought them into Canaan another time of the year, a time when the Jordan wasn't in flood when they could simply have waded across a ford. But God does not. Remember that when God separated the waters of the Red Sea 40 years earlier, he used a strong wind to achieve that end. So too, God could have brought about some natural event to disrupt the flow of the River Jordan. But God does not. God brings them to the bank of the Jordan and leaves them there for three days, both to contemplate and to consecrate themselves. God brings them there so that he himself can lead them into the Jordan. And by doing so, they will know that he is the true and living God that the true and living God is among them. And this is, in one sense, quite remarkable, because the Lord sets out a design, a scheme, to bring the Israelites to the point where they can say that they know that the living God is among them. And it's also remarkable, because Rahab has already made this profession of faith. It's almost as if the Israelites need some further help to bring them to the place where they too can make this confession of faith. And yet God's design is very tender, very gracious. He He knows who they are and he uh, works things in such a way that he is, brings them to the place where they too can have this conviction that they know and the design is also there to, to reassure them that he will be with them in the trials ahead. And so God, Joshua tells the Israelites what to expect in verse 13, doesn't he? He says, when the soles of the feet of the priests bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. The people, you see, would walk as far as they could. They would go just to the river edge. And then God would intervene. In faith, the priests had to step into the Jordan. And only then could the waters be cut off. What can we learn from this for ourselves? Surely it's good advice for us in the Christian life, isn't it? The Israelites went just as far as they could, and then they committed themselves to the Lord. And then God intervened very graciously. Sometimes as we seek to live for God and follow his will, that's what we need to do. Nearly all of us will have our own personal dreams that we face. Things that seem insurmountable or impassable. Huge issues that we struggle with and cannot see how we can get past. And they will be different for each of us. It may be an illness or it might be grief on the loss of a loved one. It might be an impossible working environment that you have to go into week by week and day by day. Or it may be a destructive family relationship. Or it may be the pain of singleness. My friends, we can contemplate the problem, but ultimately we can only go so far as we can On our own. Then we must consecrate ourselves to God and take it to Him in prayer. And while the answer might not be in the form that we anticipate, God assured us that He will lead us through our own personal Jordan. And that in doing so, we will learn through that experience. He will give us assurance for other challenges. Which may lie ahead. God dealt tenderly with the children of Israel and he deals tenderly with those who are his. He knows our frame. He knows when our faith is weak and he knows when our spirits are downcast. He knows when we need encouragement in our Christian walk and he knows those times when we are camped by the river and can see No way across. Now he might not give that encouragement today through uh, miraculous signs and wonders as he did to the children of Israel. But he gives us the promise that he will be with us as he leads us through our own personal Jordan. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus tells us as he told the disciples, lo, I am with you even to the end of days well if that was the miracle that was anticipated by Joshua and the children of Israel then we move on to the miracle observed which we read about in verses 14 through to 17 and the uh, the central feature of this section these verses is the ark of the covenant and there's a great danger that if we mention the ark of the covenant our thoughts immediately spring to Harrison Ford and films featuring Indiana Jones but you need to put those thoughts aside and we need to go back to our bibles to find out about the ark of the covenant And we read about it in Exodus chapter 25 in verses 10 to 22. And there we read the directions for the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. We read there that it was a a wooden box covered both inside and out with gold. And it was to be carried on wooden poles, again covered with gold. And these... uh, gold-covered poles passed through golden rings attached to this gold-covered box. And the box had a special lid called the mercy seat, which was made of pure gold and had golden cherubim on each end of that lid which faced one another, spreading their wings above the lid. It would have been a, an extraordinary and spectacular thing to see. If it had been out in the sunshine, it would have dazzled any who saw it, although it was to be covered when travelling. And perhaps its spectacular form signifies the extraordinary purpose which it had. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 21, the Lord God tells Moses, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant then was therefore the place where God spoke with Moses. It was a place where he gave his commandments to the people of Israel It was a symbol of god 's presence with them. Now we need to be clear, it wasn't an idol representing God. it wasn't like the images that you might find in, say a, a Roman Catholic Church, images of Christ. It was simply a physical item which indicated god 's presence with his people. But the ark wasn't just symbolic, because it did contain the two tablets of the covenant law given to Moses by God. We read about this in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law. The tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. We often think of the law being spread across those two tablets. Um, beside, uh, behind me, the, the law is written on three um, panels. But often you get these pictures of the, the law being spread over the two tablets, four on one and six on the other. But the Bible doesn't actually tell us that. And um, there are strong reasons to believe that the um, the law was actually written Twice once on each tablet. Those of you who work in the city might, or or, or work uh, in business might know that when you have an agreement, you usually have two copies, one for one party and another copy for the other. And so these two tablets, if you like, are a picture of the agreement that there is between God and his people. But why were they both kept in the ark? Well, because the ark is the focal point of Israel, so their copy should be there. But it's also the symbolic, special dwelling place of God, and that's why his copy is there. These tablets, these two tablets then in the ark, demonstrated the covenant that God had made with his people, that they would be his people. And he would be their God. The ark didn't just contain the tablets of the covenant law, however. It also contained the jar containing manna and Aaron's rod, which had budded. And these things reminded God's people of the way in which the Lord had provided for his people, guiding his people through their wanderings in the wilderness, this then is why it was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was the focal point and sign of the special relationship between God and His covenant people. These Ten Commandments though, revealed to Israel the character of God. For the law set out the perfect righteousness and the perfection and holiness of God. The tablets of the covenant law reminded the people that God is holy. But it also highlighted to the, to Israel their failings to keep that law. God is holy. And even uh, the seraphim revealed to us in Isaiah chapter six, Cover their faces before Him. Such is the awesome glory of our God. And yet the people were not holy. Perhaps this is one reason that the people were not permitted to come closer than within 2,000 cubits of the ark as they followed it to the river Jordan. How much more should we as sinful men and women tremble at the thought of approaching an almighty, holy God? But the Ark of the Covenant doesn't just proclaim the holiness of God to us, because if it were, then the Israelites would have had no hope. But in Isaiah 45, when you find the answer to this conundrum, for God declares there, there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Saviour. The ark contained the tablets of the covenant law, which quickly condemned the Israelites for their sin. But on top of that ark was the mercy seat, And it was just that, a place of mercy. The mercy seat was where blood was sprinkled by the high priest once a year. And with the shedding of blood, the scriptures told them there is remission of sins. And the people of Israel could find, yes, mercy. Though they deserved punishment for breaking God's law, At the Ark of the Covenant, God's people not only found condemnation, they also found mercy. And this then is the Ark that led the Israelites into the River Jordan. Once the feet of those carrying the Ark touched the waters, the waters separated. And the waters uh, upstream were not just stopped, but they were pushed back some 16 miles upstream such that the people were able to cross over. In verse 17 we're told, Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. I love this picture you ever go onto a beach and uh, you go down onto the beach through the, uh, the pebbles or the dry sand and then you get to that point on the beach where the, the tide has only just gone out and you stand there and your weight begins to settle into the sand and you look down at your toes and water begins to form around your feet but for these israelites it wasn't just like they were just stepping onto a beach where the tide had just gone out these priests are holding the ark of the covenant the weight is pressing down and yet we read they stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the jordan it's a lovely picture isn't it which convincing us that this was indeed a most remarkable miracle, not just that the waters were held back, but the land was dry. And when we put this verse, verse 17, together with all that we've said about the Ark of the Covenant, what do we see? Don't we see God's prophetic work as he reveals himself? through the tablets of the covenant law, and speaking to Moses through the mercy seat? Don't we see God's priestly work as mercy is obtained through the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat? Don't we see God's kingly work as the golden ark stands in the middle of the Jordan and the waters are held back Isn't the ark representative of our prophet, of our priest, of our king? Isn't the ark representative even of the Lord Jesus Christ? And there's more because whilst I spoke earlier of each of us having our own personal Jordan, is there not one Jordan which we must all face one day? For we will all face death and pass through the Jordan of Judgment. But if we're Christians, then we will not be walking alone. We'll be following the ark, even our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, as we pass through, the ark will be there on dry ground, holding the waters back. The ark then is a type of Christ who will ensure that all those who are his will cross on dry ground. And we're told in verse 17 that the priest holding the ark stayed there in the middle of the river until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Is this not in some ways suggestive of the the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? when he'd accomplished all that he had to do on the cross, when he declared, it is finished. All Israel passed over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over Jordan. For not one of God's people will be lost on that last day, but all will be brought into God's kingdom. Well, we've considered a, uh, a, uh, a miracle anticipated and a miracle observed. So we'll just spend a couple of minutes now considering the miracle remembered. And we find that in those verses that we read in the beginning of Joshua chapter 4. Just read those first couple of verses again. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men of the people from each tribe a man and command them saying take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. In 1887 a man called George Watts, proposed that a memorial should be erected. He wanted people to take note and remember events that had happened in the past so that they would not be forgotten by people in the future. It's known as the Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice, And if you're regular here at LCPC, you'll know that you can see it on the wall just outside the church in Postman's Park. Memorials then are established so that we remember significant events that have happened in the past. And here we find the Lord establishing a monument to commemorate the miracle that he had just carried out that day. And here in this passage we find the Lord establishing a memorial. Now, when you read Joshua chapter 4, the, uh, the order of the narrative is slightly confusing. Um, it's a bit like uh, watching a program that you've recorded and then you fast rewind back and look at a bit again. So as you read chapter four, it it does seem as if you're seeing the same scene several times over. But notwithstanding that, the narrative is clear. Twelve men are selected, one man from each tribe. And they select rocks from the dry ground right by the place where the ark has been held in the middle of the Jordan. And these aren't small rocks either, uh, for they have to be carried on the soldiers, on, on the shoulders of these representatives of each tribe. And the stones are taken out of the river and carried to Gilgal, where the Israelites camp that night. And uh, towards the end of chapter four in verse 20 we read that Joshua sets them up as a memorial. And from these verses we see that the stones accomplish two things. First, the uh, the stones represent the entire nation of Israel because there is one stone for each tribe. Joshua appointed one man from each tribe and each in turn selected one stone to represent that tribe. Secondly, we see that the stones testify to the faithfulness and miraculous power of God, for they were taken from the riverbed, not just anywhere in the riverbed, but just where the feet of the priests had stood who were holding the ark. Why have a memorial? Well, Joshua tells the Israelites in verses 21 and 22, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. The memorial then was to remind God's people the next ge- and the next generation and generations after that of God's power, his faithfulness, and his mercy. But also to give assurance to them that as God had done that in the past, so God would be able to help them as they face trials in the future. And what's good for the Old Testament is good for the New, isn't it? It's good to remember and to be reminded for we are uh, so easily amnesic, forgetful as um, in spiritual things. And we are reminded week by week as we hear God's word of Christ's saving wake work. And we are reminded of Christ's saving work day by day as we read the scriptures for ourselves. There's another application, however, which um, will be a challenge, not just to parents, but also to all in the church. We should be prepared to explain the gospel to children and young people in the church. But not just explain the gospel when asked, but to build a memorial which provokes the question. So act and speak of God and of what he has done in our lives in a way that young people cannot but ask the question, what does this mean? And those of you who are teenagers or children, don't let the adults get off too lightly. It's great to have young people in our evening Zoom meetings who ask some really pertinent and searching questions. So, To those of you who are even still at school, I would say, ask questions and demand answers. There's one final point, though, which um, I think we would do well to note. When we looked at the beginning of chapter 3, I passed over one verse quite quickly. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 7, we read this. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And in chapter 4, verse 14, it's not on the sheet, but in chapter 4, verse 14, we see that this is exactly what happened. And we read in verse 14, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua In the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him and just, just as they'd stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. You see, the miracle was remembered, but not just in a pile of stones. It was remembered in the exaltation of Joshua. The miraculous way in which God brought the Israelites through the Jordan resulted in the people standing in the awe, in awe of Joshua their leader and as we have seen in previous weeks Joshua is a type of Christ god's act of redemption then brings the people in bringing his people through the jordan served to reflect that glory onto Joshua the type of Christ and these two verses in the beginning of chapter 3 and the end of chapter 4 are almost like parentheses around the whole narrative of this great miracle. You know, there is a sense in which the the details of this account is just a brie- like a brief aside from the greater story. And in- indeed it is just one cameo in the great history of how God the Father has exalted his son, the Lord Jesus. There's a sense in which the priests who carried the ark and those who carried the stones and the the 40,000 soldiers and the countless others who crossed the river that day, why, they were just extras, bit part actors in this great act of redemption which had been carried out. The real storyline was taking place between God and Joshua. And the real story behind the crossing of the Jordan was that Joshua was that type of Christ who is exalted by the Lord. Isn't it remarkable that God bound up the good of his people with the manifestation of his own glory. As the Lord promotes our good, then he advances the glory of his name. And this gives us a tremendous motive when we pray for the advance of the gospel and for ourselves in our own spiritual walk Like the psalmist at the beginning of Psalm 115, we can pray, not for us, Lord, not for us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And surely, ultimately, this found perfection, didn't it? Perfect expression in John 17 There was the Lord Jesus facing the reality of his forthcoming death on the cross, anticipating the horror that he would face, knowing that he would do that to call his people to himself, secure forever. And he says, Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So the exaltation of Joshua that comes about as a result of this great miracle points us to a day when we will stand in awe of our Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be just the extras, the bit park actors. We'll have come through the Jordan, but the real story Will be a song of praise when we stand in awe of our Joshua, praising him for the redemption he has received, he has achieved. Let's pray together. Our Lord and God, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. You are the God who redeemed your people of old, you wrought that miracle at the River Jordan. You exhibited, O oh Lord, your mercy and your grace, as well as your holiness and your greatness. And we thank you, Lord, that we are that same. We, we worship the seat this morning, that same God. Father, we look forward to that day when we too will be able to gather with your people from times past, That time when we will gather to worship you, our Joshua, our Jesus, who has led us through the Jordan. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.